Millennials don't care about the world, only themselves. After all, isn't this the generation that's made selfies ubiquitous, obliterated the concept of oversharing through confessional Twitter threads, Facebook live streams, 10-second snaps, and displaying their lives online? Surprise, surprise, the answer isn't actually as clear as you'd think. Is it Generation Me or Generation We puzzled the BBC article this past fall? Psychologists can't decide. Here in Canada, we're no stranger to the contradictions. The Enveronics Institute for Survey Research released a study in February 2017 on the social values of Canadian millennials. It looked at a representative sample of over 3,000 Canadians aged 21 to 36 in the summer of 2016. It's the very first study of its kind. And the study found that what millennials want most out of work and career is a good balance between work and their personal life. And making an important contribution to society was of strong importance to some, but not most. While low voter turnout has earned millennials a reputation for being disconnected from politics and current events, this is more of a stereotype than reality. As you might have guessed, most follow news and current events daily, if not more. And significant proportions pay attention to politics at the local, national, and international levels. Social media is the most common platform, but surprisingly large numbers also rely on traditional media, such as TV, print newspapers, and radio. One in four millennials has been actively engaged in a cause or issue in the past year, mostly involving social justice, the environment, politics, or healthcare. Such involvement is linked to education, as well as social values, the researchers found, and millennials get involved through online channels, but a significant proportion pursue participation in real life, IRL. This is Avocado Toast, a podcast from the Atkinson Foundation. From researchers to activists to people who are living it, we want to build the movement towards decent work. Millennial myths, prepare to be busted. In this episode, how millennials are actually engaging with the issues that matter and setting their sights on decent work too. Working at the intersections of social justice and emerging media in the cultural and creative industries, Dr. Chenjerai Kumanyika is a researcher, journalist, an artist, and assistant professor in Rutgers University's Department of Journalism and Media Studies. Starting in the fall of 2014, Dr. Kumanyika pulled in international audiences with his live stream coverage of protests in a number of American cities, including Ferguson, New York, Ohio, Philadelphia, and Charlottesville. He is the co-executive producer and co-host of the awesome Gimlet Media podcast, Uncivil, which reveals the untold stories of the American Civil War. We caught up with him while he was in Toronto for Democracy Exchange, a civic campaign and technology summit where he was giving a keynote address, Citizen Participation in the Digital Age. My name is Chinjirai Kumnika. I'm a professor at Rutgers Department of Journalism and Media Studies in the School of Information and Communication. And I am also a co-host and co-executive producer of Uncivil with Gimlet Media. And so, and as far, I'm from, I mean, I was born in, in New York. I've lived on the East Coast, various places. I mean, one, one context where I started really observing the interaction of millennials and technology 
was in the context of protest because one of the things I come to I come to journalism as somebody who really was kind of a hybrid journalist, activist, journalist, organizer kind of person. And I was going and saying, like, I want to tell these stories. And, you know, in 2011, the story I was hearing about millennials was coming kind of influenced by like Malcolm Gladwell way of thinking where he wrote this article like the revolution will not be tweeted. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a really pessimistic understanding of millennials and activism, that they're just this generation who wants to sit on their couches and and kind of like be on social media and is not going to be engaged in the way that like this romanticized idea of what was happening in the civil rights movement had. And of course, this it's funny that that came out in 2011, because later in 2011, you just saw everything unfold that completely contradicted that, right? You see the Arab Spring, you see... Uh, Occupy, you see uh, Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, in-person movements of people putting their bodies on the line, coming together, forming communities of presence that sustain themselves as long and even longer than certain campaigns in the, during the civil rights movement. So, and being in Ferguson, right, I mean, I'm the kind of young people that actually were at the forefront of them, of their movement, you know, out there on Florissant Ave, you know, in St. Louis, they were folks who basically a lot of those folks couldn't get jobs because as all these places and cities have gone through these renaissances where jobs got transferred to like tech jobs and the kind of jobs that you could get if you're like a person who's lower income or doesn't have a certain kind of education, it's like the, you know, and then, and then a lot of those jobs also, those tech jobs are basically removing jobs out of the economy, right? You know what the grocery stores look like. You're checking yourself in. So all, you know, the same thing is starting to happen in the fast food sector, mm-hmm. you know. So they, you, so I was seeing the young people who would have formerly had those jobs, now they don't have those jobs. And they were protesting those conditions and they were protesting policing as the solution to those conditions. And they were using technology as part of that process. Mm-hmm. It would be great to hear a little bit more about that, especially because we know that the application of technology, the way that it's used, is not equal across millennials themselves either, right? That's right. That racialized millennials, black, indigenous people of color are using uh, technology in very uh, unique ways to create social change. Can you speak to some of the ways that you've seen that have been the most effective and the most powerful in moving forward issues, you know, related to decent work and otherwise? You know. Know, black, brown, indigenous communities, for one, with the sometimes limited access they have to like really high expensive data plans and stuff like that, have used technology in very innovative ways and really in a lot of ways have led the forefront of like how these tech companies have formatted some of their technologies. I mean, certainly with Twitter, I mean, I think that, you know, black people and movements shape that technology. And I don't know that that company in reverse has made the same kind of investment in the communities that really innovated the culture of them. The same could probably be said for Snapchat, right, and Instagram. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that the ability to tell stories is a really interesting uh, component of social media, a different format for storytelling. And the way that by telling a story, you can unpack and reveal to people and give people a personal way to connect to deeper structural politics that are shaping their world. When I talk about the fact that the working class is really, you know, a brown Muslim woman who works at a fast food restaurant and what are the conditions she's dealing with in her daily life, when we tell her story, a brown LGBT person and their story 
and how all these things affect them. And you lay that story out. These are some of the things that the Fight for 15 movement has been able to do in cities across the U.S. See, that's what is exciting to me is the ability to do that, because I got to be honest. I mean, we talk about these myths about millennials. I wouldn't offload the problems and the worries there onto onto millennials and onto their bodies or their culture. I would say that these are worries that we have to have about the way that the digital age is constructed and presented to us. And I think that the digital era cuts multiple ways. From being in Ferguson, from being in New York when the when the Millions March was organized by millennials, 50,000 people marching through New York, from being in Charlottesville, the thing I see that's very inspiring is the ways that folks are using social media to tell stories. But there is, I think, a dangerous component to it, which is that sometimes you can think about these storytelling as in a very fragmented way. You can think about it in a way that's just about personal, individual moments of personal expression, even individual moments of gathering. I remember seeing Twitter be covered with a new vision of what the working class looked like. And it was young and older people, actually, who were brown, and they were and they were telling their stories about being exploited really in the workplace by these companies. What I think a lot of organizers and people who are interested in changing conditions have to learn and what media makers have to learn is how can we embed our stories, how can we connect those stories to movements that can translate it into actual leverage. So it just doesn't become an utterance that ultimately just does something like builds metrics for companies that don't really help us. The big thing I'm I'm about is taking away to take the excitement and the sort of mobilization and energy of movements that that you might see a lot circulating online and connecting them to sustained campaigns that exert leverage, right? And I think there's examples of that in the U.S. I mean, right now in Philadelphia, we just won a victory getting the most progressive DA, a, a, a district attorney in the country elected. What's more exciting, it's not, I'm not so excited about Krasner himself as an individual and the fact that he is about ending cash bail and the speaks to that. I'm more about excited about the fact that the movement which still exists around him, which is actually, I would say, feels like they're just getting going upon his election as opposed to sort of petering out. That coalition is was actually in power. The idea of when a person is in power, it's actually a movement that's in power for real, you know, not not in the Obama way, you know. So these municipal elections that are coming up, I think here in, in Canada, you know, in the next year are going to be crucial. I feel like everybody should run. Everybody should go out and run for something. And you might be like, oh, I don't do politics. That's not really my thing. But, you know, what I saw in Ferguson, right, was like, you know, or in Ohio, right, where you had a 12-year-old boy killed by police. If we as a movement can't take over that local apparatus after that, we ain't saying nothing. I don't care how much we tweet. You know what I mean? We got to be able to take it over at that level. That's not the presidency. That's in our control. You know what I mean? We talk about it being our streets. Well, like, yo, the streets are literally run by the municipalities. So let's actually take those streets and really and enforce that. You know, and then they, and then we have to face the problem of governance. So I think teasing out the political action and connecting those campaigns in a in a place in the U.S. where we've lost control of, of like political power and we're facing the consequences, right? Like people are getting deported in real life because of this. You know, trans people are being discriminated against in real life because of this. Muslim people are facing real life discrimination and choices because of this. These are things I think that we know and the Canada is maybe even more advanced on, but the ability to put more progressive candidates in power, 
starts with that, like right now, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, <laughs> folks are very cynical about elected representation and right. what it can actually do. And I think what we've seen over the last uh, year in particular in a very stark way in the leadership in the States is that it does matter, right, who yes. is in power. Yes. And that it it is really even more important that people who are in power are aligned with our interests uh, that do have ambitions around social justice and economic justice in the world and that they will use those positions to leverage those issues forward. And I think what's been interesting to also observe is reconciling the history that got us here, right? Whether it is around, you know, how the economy has been shaped, whether it is around civil rights. And I want to particularly just give a shout out to your podcast, Uncivil. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's not disconnected from the movement building and the political power we want to be able to seize and what that experience has been like. Right. Well, no, I hope so. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm the co-host and producer of uh, Gimlet Media. Uncivil is our show. It's almost like a people's history of the Civil War. But I think of it broadly as a history podcast because we don't always only deal with the Civil War. We're dealing with the Civil War and undoing a lot of myths because a lot of the core myths about the Civil War are related to core myths about what America means and what the United States means and really about what Western democracies mean. And so by foregrounding the experiences of women, black people, LGBT people, and radical uh, white folks and really just undoing and, and historicizing the myth, those myths, we're creating a certain kind of community, I think, with the storytelling. Having learned how to do it, I'm excited to try to talk to other journalists and organizers to say, how can we talk about, let's, let's make an exciting podcast about the history of the school boards. Let's talk about the city council. Why are, why is the city council so entrenched? Those are topics that seem like, oh, you can't do it. And I mean, trust me, the Civil War, when we talked about the Civil War in the U.S. doing a podcast about it, it was like, I, mean, I would tell people about it and I would be like, yeah, I'm doing a podcast. They're like, oh, really exciting. I'm like, it's a Gimlet. They'd be like, oh, even more exciting. Then I'd be like, they're like, what's it about? I'd be like, the Civil War. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I can't wait. You know. <laughs> and But I, I hope that we've been able to do it in a way that has changed. You know, we're, we're almost at a million downloads now. And that's really exciting to me. But it's particularly exciting as, again, the idea that we can take this and create communities of people who have this kind of political education that they can translate into issues that affect everybody. You know, I'm, I work on another podcast called Seen on Radio with uh, with John Bewin, who's he's the sort of lead producer. And I kind of come on as a contributor. And then John and I kind of a co-producer on certain episodes. But. It's a history of racial ideas, and I think it's really, you know, we've gotten wonderful reception with this. Again, with that, I don't know where we're at now, five, five, 600,000 downloads probably, just to give you a sense of the scope of it. And the reason why I mention that is not to kind of like stunt, like, oh, look how many, but to say that this is a massive project of political education, right? And what has been so exciting in the response from this is that there's been people, you know, up in Boston, all around the country who have, who have formed their own listening groups to sit there and st- study groups around this podcast. And then those people then want to figure out, because, you know, once once they understand the history of what they've been involved with, these might have been people who are kind of like with liberal politics. I mean, I want to be respectful to our listeners, but people kind of 
sort of understood Black Lives Matter, but maybe was kind of like, why can't we all get along? Or why does identity have to be so in the forefront? And then when they understand the history of it and they realize, oh, the whole history of U.S. and Western democracy has been a, a white identity project, you know, a white male, a white male straight capitalist identity project, then they're like, oh, and they suddenly become open to different kinds of interventions. The, 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 as a professor, I'm interested in this kind of public scholarship. I mean, come on, people, I, you know, I struggle to get my students to read, mm-hmm. right? You're going to tell me there's like 500,000 people who want to listen for 40 minutes to ideas about the history of race, and they're really going, then they're going to study it and talk about it, and then they, at the end of that, are like tweeting me, like, what can I do? One thing I think that Seeing White was able to accomplish, and I'm trying not to give too many spoilers, but one thing it was able to accomplish was it allowed people a way to be in their bodies and say, this is, this is the age I'm at, this is what my skin color is, this is what my experience is, and to feel like that is not the thing that renders you good or evil, right? It's that you recognize what those intersections mean and that how do you then leverage that position into um, transform the world into something that, not to make America great again, but to make it something that it has never been. That idea translates into things that would be very relevant here as well. The point about history is really well taken. And, you know, from my my role here at the Atkinson Foundation, we just celebrated 75 years of this foundation. And uh, we produced a a really... um, interesting, exciting uh, project that we're, we're, we were really enthusiastic about putting into the world, and it was mm. a graphic novella mm. uh, that uh, was looking at the the history or the stories of decent work, and we unearthed some amazing stories about women, uh, women from immigrant backgrounds, oh uh, women God. who were journalists at the time, who were moving those issues forward and might never have gotten the credit uh, that uh, that they deserved. And listening to Uncivil was definitely, it was so timely for us as we were unpacking the whole process and history is constantly revising as it should be through new eyes through better questions and then we take we take that back to the source material and we see what else we can unearth that actually does serve the future right and i think that's very very exciting to uh, us yeah that's that's i mean yeah that's i'm so i'm I'm so excited by that um and i think that i really your point is taken and i love the way that you just brought out the point of the stories about movements as a way of talking about how we got to this moment, right? Some of the things that we like, some of the victories. You know, uh, one thing that I notice is that people will often, when you start bringing up what's these difficult histories, I mean, it's really just you bring up the real history, right? Uh, and they, they're like, well, haven't we made some progress, though? And what I've noticed is that when people talk about progress or talk about the victories that we have had, they, that's all, almost always mentioned as an argument against a kind of radical politics. And I'm like, it seems to me like that the opposite should be true. Whatever victories we've had, I mean, who, who in the end of the day were the people that were arguing for voting rights, that were arguing for working protections in the workplace, that were arguing for more affordable housing, that were arguing for all those things, health care. In the end, it was always the radical people and the radical movements. And I also take your point that 
the histories that we do have, though, tend to foreground like men and straight people and, you know, maybe like Christians or, you know, that kind of thing. So um, to, compli- to complicate even yeah. those histories, I mean, I just it's this is like I think so important. Uh, absolutely. And I think that you've raised so many of the points that we we <laughs> got to unearth in this project. And one of them was, you know, that uh, these these ideas were radical at the time that Joseph Atkinson and other organizers and activists in in that era raised them. But even over the course of a lifetime, they became established politics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, things that were undeniable to a much broader cross-section of, uh, of Canadian people, right? And I want to ask you just kind of one yeah. final question sure. uh, because it's, a, it's an issue and, and something that's so important uh, to our work, to this conversation that we're having. But I want to put it to you. Uh, you know, what does the term decent work mean to you? Right. Well, I mean, people should have some control over the terms of their work and they I think people have a right to actually some of the profits that are <laughs> developed from their work. So there's no reason that we should have companies that are making billions of dollars and people are can't have a wage that they can even function on. I mean that's just basic, right? Some control over the terms of their work, uh, what they have to do, decisions, you know, I think some of good work is about governance in the workplace, right? Who's making the choices? You know, in the end of the day, if a worker is sharing in some way in the profits and they decide they want to work a little longer, that's totally different than being told by a manager. And then those extra hours of your work are expropriated and given to some shareholders who just see your job as a blip on their stock portfolio. You know, that's not good work. Nothing about that is good. I mean, work that is safe and that doesn't damage your health. You have to have health protections and, you know, and those health protections should be extensive. Again, I mean, when we look at these companies, we're not talking. I understand that for very small businesses, there's a struggle about how to balance these things. But let's face it, this this conversation, we're not we're not primarily talking about them. We're talking about corporations who are making billions of dollars off of the labor of people who are vulnerable. The issue about health protections and, the, you know, essentially all those kind of workplace protections has to be intensified as part of this. So to me, as somebody who's not an expert in that particular thing, you know, that that's just some of the things I think about when I think about good work. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I hope that's relevant. <laughs> that's absolutely relevant. And thank you so much. And that, uh, you know, and that aligns with the stories that we hear, uh, the folks that we support and um, the ways that we tell uh, tell our individual stories and our stories of now and our stories of, of movement building. And this has been really fantastic. So thank you for taking the time uh, to talk with us. Well, it's I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this and to be a part of a show and to be on with you and the way in which you all are really uh, living and practicing these things and translating them is really exciting for me. So um, I'm going to go back and tell the Uncivil Squad and, uh, you know, thank you. Chenjirai, where can we find more about you and your work? Well, you can find me at, at catch a tweet down on Twitter. Uh, it's just, just how it sounds spelled in that same way. Uh, I'm I'm on Facebook. I still got a couple slots left. If you if anybody if any millennials still know what that platform is, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean that, that's you could also ch- I encourage you to go to uh, we have an uncivil Facebook group, so you should check that out. And then uncivil show. I want to be in contact with all of all of the people who listen to uncivil because yeah, I just want to be able to reach reach out to them, you know, and uh, connect with them directly.
Sarah Gemma is a community organizer in Hamilton, Ontario. Her passion for disability justice, anti-racism, and activism come from her lived experience. She has a track record of championing youth and community leadership and continues that in her work at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and in the office of Councillor Matthew Green at Hamilton City Hall. Sarah is also working with Hamilton Wentworth District School Board to create anti-racism training and peer support-based curriculum for students at the school board. Oh yeah, and she's 23. I spoke with Sarah about how millennials like her are making change and what it's like to be called an activist. My name is Sarah Jamal. I was an outreach coordinator for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, and I'm currently working as a community engagement liaison for Councillor Matthew Green at City Hall. I think that the myth that millennials aren't engaged with the world around them is completely false. If you look at the history of movements across the world globally and in Canada, most movements have been started by people who were in their youth, who had the freedom and the energy and the drive to try to figure out how the heck to make some sort of a change in like the disparaging world around us. And so I think throughout history, young people have always been engaged with the world around them. It's just that the current system that we live in exists in a way that it's making it harder for us to be able to focus on change making when we're struggling to survive. Most youth who graduate from high school or university end up in precarious working conditions and contracts. We're not in positions where we have benefits or health care or flexibility or a solid nine-to-five, um, so it makes it really hard to practice activism and organizing unless we're in a position that's secure in employment, right? There was a time where I would identify as an activist, first and foremost, and that was when I was learning the skills on how to make a change and make an impact, and I was learning the skills of different tactics, like what does a rally do, what does a protest do, what does policy lobbying do, what kind of outcomes can I push for? But in today's day and age, I would identify as an organizer. An organizer is someone who understands these different tactics, how to utilize them, understands the context where we're moving and the change that they want to see, and also organizes with other activists. I think activism has somehow turned a little bit individualistic. So you'll have like people and names that are well-known for doing sort of work, but there's a lot of organizing and organizers around that. And I think an organizer is someone who knows how to work in a collective and that sees that one change is not just made by itself, that there are different root causes that cause multiple issues. So somebody doing environmental justice work should be collaborating with people doing disability justice work or anti-racism work um, or indigenous solidarity because a lot of the root causes to the issues that we're fighting for are very similar. So in that way, I'd identify as an organizer versus an individual activist pushing for the individual causes that I care about. I guess the very first instance that inspired me to go into activism was when I was in grade 11, I attended Martin Grove Collegiate Institute, and I met a kid in grade 9. His name was George, who had told me he wanted to apply to Etobicoke School of the Arts because he wanted to be an actor, but he didn't apply because they didn't have an elevator. And I think for me that was the first time where me being like physically disabled, having cerebral palsy, and needing elevators myself for support, it was the first time where I started to think of accessibility as not just my issue, my burden to carry, but seeing things that were systemically wrong. Um, how could a school 
which was public, um, stopped someone from applying, right? So I was frustrated. I basically got on the bus, <laughs> like, a couple weeks later to go and try to delegate at the Special Education Advisory Committee of the Toronto District School Board. And the chair at the time, Chris Bolton, laughed in my face when I showed up. He said, who do you think you are? Why are you here? You don't really have speaking rights. You didn't fill out a delegation form. Um, at that time, I was also pushing for a student to be represented on the Special Education Advisory Committee because I, I found it weird that there were no students with disabilities on there. And he said, like, what do you, how, why do you think that you're the spokesperson for this thing? Why are you here? You didn't fill out a speaking request. Um, he, he thought it was very amusing. And so for me, that was the first time seeing a space with people in power making a decision to not hear somebody out um, because of procedural processes or because it, I didn't fit the institutional mold of what that bureaucratic space looked like at that time. And so for me, that was the moment where I my eyes sort of opened. It was my aha moment. And I promised myself that if something like that ever happened again, I'd figure out a way to not be silenced and to make a change. And so I graduated, went to McMaster University, relocated to Hamilton. And I met a lot of, like, local activists there. And I started to do Fight for 15 flyering. That was my first time sort of joining the campaign. Um, we were actually the first group to bring the Fight for 15 movement from Toronto to Hamilton before the labor unions picked it up. I started to realize the impact of being an organizer, someone who could work toward multiple different issues, realizing how it affects the greater community versus caring about one issue at a time. Right now, I'm sort of working with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network um, because there's an LRT development happening in Hamilton. And so we're going to try to push for affordable housing to be developed along the line of the LRT. So that's something that we're pushing for, but also to make sure that the people being hired to work on LRT are people of color who would need employment instead of the employment going elsewhere. So these are some of the things that we're trying to push for. It's, it's about making sure that the community is being involved um, and has a say in the development that's happening so that people aren't being pushed out of their own communities and their neighborhoods. I feel as though I get pegged as an identity politician a lot. So somebody who only cares about identity politics, right? Because I talk a lot about being racialized, physically disabled, and how like the, the activism that I want to do affects that kind of work. On the other end of the spectrum, though, there I've been getting like a lot of visibility for some of the work that I'm doing here in Hamilton, which is also kind of strange, because that tells me that I'm also being treated as like one person, but there, for every one person who's doing activism or organizing, there's 10 people that don't get the same visibility. Putting only one person in a spotlight, it, it makes it seem as though the changes we want to make will never be attainable because it's not inspiring other people to jump on board. In terms of like making sure that movements are reflective of like as many communities that are organizing as possible, I think what a lot of people are doing now, which is really cool, is amplifying each other's voices. A lot of people are turning to social media and to Twitter and taking control of that themselves, right? Really telling the stories of what's going on on the ground themselves and using social media as a platform. So I think in that way, uh, the way the way in which we're combating the way uh, activism being portrayed as like an individualistic thing or organizing as an individualistic thing is moving our movements also to social media to share what each other, what everyone's doing in different communities. 
Sarah's work is local to her community in Hamilton. There's another group based in Toronto that's having impacts province-wide. The Fight for 15 and Fairness was successful in increasing minimum wage to $15 in Ontario. I talked to Neil Sindil, an organizer with the Workers' Action Centre and the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign. Through the Workers' Action Centre's organizing and mobilizing, workers have won commitments to increase minimum wage, better legislative protections for temporary workers, and an improved enforcement regime. Here's Neil and her colleague Navi talking about why they, as millennials, care so much about the activism work that they do. My name is Navi Adjala and I'm an intern organizer at the Workers' Action Centre and I've also been organizing in Brampton for the 15 and Fairness campaign. And my name is Nil Sendel. I'm an organizer with the Workers' Action Centre and I'm mainly working on the Fight for $15 Minimum Wage and Fairness campaign. Uh, so the Workers' Action Centre is a very unique, uh, special kind of place where um, workers can come to get assistance with any issues that they're having at work beyond just helping workers with like problems at work. Uh, it's a space for them to organize and to provide their input and take action on actually changing the laws to be um, better and to create better working conditions. There is a very big focus at the Workers' Action Centre to really do outreach into communities where uh, English may not be the first language, so we have a, a strong focus in organizing in uh, communities where workers speak Spanish, as well as uh, Mandarin or Cantonese, as well as uh, Tamil. And I think bringing people together around the common denominator of uh, workplace issues and, uh, you know, uh, injustices around workers' rights, but still having that melting pot uh, where people come with different identities, uh, different backgrounds, different ethnic and language backgrounds. I think that's where it's really, it really becomes um, interesting because uh, you, you bring uh, linkages and you form um, solidarity in a very real way uh, while trying to improve outcomes for the greatest number of people, whether it's through policy change or whether it's through stronger enforcement. And maybe the last thing to say is that the Workers' Action Center is based in Toronto and we are mainly organizing in neighborhoods throughout Toronto, whether it's Regent Park or West End or Scarborough or Rexdale or North York. But uh, over time, uh, the center has also uh, played a role in uh, helping build capacity in communities across Ontario, especially now with the Fight for $15 Minimum Wage and Fairness campaign, where there are multiple um, groups, uh, student groups, faith groups, uh, health groups, unions uh, throughout Ontario coming together as part of this coalition to win a $15 minimum wage and fair working conditions. And the Workers' Action Centre is a big part of that, as well as uh, one of the main pieces of infrastructure behind the campaign. Yeah, and I just want to add that one of the great things that happens at the Workers' Action Centre is that um, communities are given kind of the resources and the training to organize themselves. And there's an understanding that people from different communities understand best what's going on or, or the workers themselves in that community. Um, the knowledge comes from them because they're experiencing these issues on a daily basis. So they're just given like support in terms of organizing themselves and really, I guess, carry out the kind of work that they know is needed mm -hmm. in their communities. 
I've worked through um, a bunch of temp agency jobs um, when I was in school and I also know that in my community that's just um, the only work that a lot of people can get. Um, so living in Brampton with a large South Asian population, a lot of new immigrants, um, even for like the millennial generation, I know a lot of my cousins and my friends who, whether they have an education or they're in university, they can't find jobs other than through temp agencies as well. So just seeing that and, and working through it and just knowing that this is something that people go through on a daily basis is what motivates me because I, um, I know that it needs to be changed and it's very, very tough working through these conditions and it's not fair. And uh, so just, yeah, knowing that that change is needed is what keeps me going. I have uh, came as a student to Canada. I've been in Canada for a little over five years and both as a recent grad as well as a newcomer i think the kind of jobs that are available to people and the kind of uh, conditions they have to put up with as navi said is quite uh, appalling and uh, quite um, disappointing discouraging but i think uh, understanding that things don't have to be this way and things can get better and we can expect more and we can organize way organize our way to that uh, better uh, kind of working condition and living standard for everybody uh, that that what's that's what uh, drives my work and I think the other pieces you know when we talk about movements and organizing we are very quick usually I think to point to victories and struggles that happened decades ago it, I, to me it's it's really um, energizing and fascinating to be at a time where there is a movement that is being built that is bringing together people from different walks of life like we said as well as different groups that wouldn't normally be considered I think labor activists when you have doctors and teachers and faith leaders uh, you know walking arm in arm with uh, workers whether they belong to unions or not I think all of that is really fertile ground where we are going to be winning better and better rights for people we hope everybody will take a moment to go to our website it's 15 and fairness org. If you do have a problem at your workplace or if you know someone who has a problem at their workplace, uh, please call the hotline operated by the Workers Action Center. And this is a confidential hotline and I'm going to give out the toll-free number. And people can also call in different languages. Uh, so English is not a necessity. Uh, it can be reached at one 531 0778. That is 1-855-531-0778. Whether trolling fascists, putting a spotlight on human rights crises, or targeting patriarchy and rape culture, some of the most powerful movements for change are being propelled by millennials. This myth was an easy one to bust. Don't let anyone tell you that millennials don't care about the world. We want to shine a spotlight on some of the amazing millennials involved in the fight for decent work. Know someone great? Send me an email at amalik at atkinsonfoundation.ca. That's A-M-A-L-I-K at atkinsonfoundation.ca. Thanks for listening. On the next episode, we'll look at the myth of wired millennials, can they really pull themselves away from their phones long enough to get anything done? Avocado Toast is produced by Katie Jensen with production assistance from Yasmin Maturin. It's hosted by me, Asma Malik. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF. 
Avocado Toast is the first podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for and by millennial workers. 